Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, I'm the editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by Priya Gopal, who is a leading academic and author and professor of post-colonial studies at the University of Cambridge. For the latest issue of Prospect, Priya wrote uh, a really uh, interesting review of a new book by Tariq Ali, Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. We titled her piece The Churchill Cult, as she argues that Britain needs to face up to the darker side of its great wartime icon. In her review, Gopal suggests that the cult of Churchill has become a full-blown devotional practice where anyone who demurs is met with at least with shock and more probably tabloid denunciation. But from Priya's reading of Ali's book, Churchill emerges as a, quote, profoundly authoritarian figure with a soft spot for fascist strongmen and a hostility to working class assertion. Well, Priya, lots to talk about. And thank you so much for joining us. Firstly, one thing I found really interesting in your book was the suggestion that the what you call the cult of Churchill is a relatively recent phenomenon. And you, you think that it assumed it's quasi-religious nature during the Falklands conflict of 1982. So can you explain what you mean by the Churchill cult and the story of why it blossomed in the 1980s? Yeah, so I'm drawing on um, Ali himself here. Um, Ali argues in the book that uh, Churchill, as we now know him, um, has come to us through a relatively recent iteration in the 1980s, and that church, there is a distinction to be made, and I agree, between Churchill, the historical man, the figure, and Churchill, the mythology, uh, which has now come down to us through various kind of processes. And I think that there are other historians who would agree with Ali here. I'm thinking of work done by Stephen Fielding, Bill Schwartz, Richard Toy, which also argues that there are a set of mythologies around Churchill, which are quite distinct in some ways from the historical figure himself. Um, Ali is drawing on the work of other historians um, to make the point about the Falklands War being a specific moment 
when this idea of the great wartime icon, um, who sort of becomes a godlike figure, um, not to be questioned, not to be in any way criticized, is really part of a propaganda exercise that emerges around the Falklands War and obviously um, Thatcher herself, uh, who would quite frequently refer to Churchill by first name. Um, so I think there is a, a case to be made that what we understand by Churchill is a historical construction and that there are particular moments at which that historical construction is uh, put into uh, into action. And, and um, Brexit, in fact, is also one of those moments. But Ali's argument is that the Falklands War was a, a key moment in deploying this, this cult. I mean, one of the things that... Um... Uh, people who don't like these sort of books say is, well, you're you're judging a man by present day times, um, and your your uh, the, the phrase they love is you're, you're rewriting history. But your review and and Ali's book uh, is really saying, well, actually, um, even by the standards of his time, uh, there were many people who thought he was a deeply flawed person. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, one of the things to say about this claim uh, in general is that it is no more true of um, past generations than it is of ours that everybody had exactly the same values. It is absolutely untrue, for instance, that even in the 19th century, everybody thought that the British Empire was a great thing. I've written elsewhere about British dissidents on the question of empire, on the question of race. Um, to give one small example... Um, in 1955, when um, Harold Macmillan notes that Churchill is quite fond of the slogan, keep England white, this is the exact moment in Parliament that Fenner Brockway, a left-wing Labour MP, is trying to push through uh, a race relations act, an act debarring racism and the colour bar. Now, if indeed Churchill was off his moment, then how do we explain the existence of people in his very uh, circles, in his very institutions, who are taking quite a different position? On the matter of race, even other Tories, even people who were close to Churchill, remarked, for instance, on his near pathological hatred of Indians, uh, remarked, uh, you know, Leo Amory, who was um, Secretary of State for India at the time of the Bengal famine, uh, himself remarks that on the matter of India, Church. Uh, if I, I think it, he says Winston is not quite sane on the on the matter of India. There isn't much difference between his outlook and Hitler's, which are very sharp words coming from somebody who is a friend and an ally. So I think it's quite safe to say that there is. It is probably nonsensical to imagine that people didn't have very different views uh, on empire, on race, on racism um, in their times as we do in ours. And I, I suppose it, it, the the early part of the 20th century, or for much of the first half, pre, pre-war pre half of the 20th century, Churchill had a very mixed record, both militarily and politically. He did, and that's something that's also often written out of the kind of imperial war icon, which is really how we receive him today. I mean, today, the place where people go to 
pay pilgrim, you know, to do a pilgrimage are the, are the war rooms. And we, I think, often forget, and we've been, in a sense, invited to forget that his military record was checkered, that Gallipoli and the Dardanelles were, uh, you know, a huge uh, 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 problem uh, and that he was criticized for it at the time. Not everybody in the uh, military services saw him as a, an unambiguously great commander and leader. So there is a way in which the cult, um, as it were, has burnished uh, Churchill and written out some of the more troubling questions around even his military record, never mind anything else. Ali argues that there were two foundational elements to Churchill's career, what he calls glorifying colonial atrocities abroad and suppressing working class revolts at home. Can you talk a bit more about those two prongs of Ali's argument? Mm. Yes, again, you know, now when we uh, think of Churchill, we are invited to think about his record really in foreign policy, in putting up resistance to Hitler and as a man of the empire and also, of course, of, of a transatlantic alliance. We don't talk very much about his domestic record. And it was quite interesting to me when I first started looking into Churchill and how people thought about Churchill today, that a number of people told me that they had, for instance, working class grandparents and great grandparents uh, who hated him and who would not have his name uh, mentioned in the house. And these are people who largely, though not only, came from working class families, families also in Wales. And I think Ali's book does a fairly good job of reminding us that Churchill was prone to a spot of um, repression when it came to working class protests, when it came to uh, unions, when it came to uh, assertions of, uh, you know, of working class militancy, and most famously, of course, in Tony Pandy in Wales, where he uh, infamously was w- willing to deploy troops to put down uh, a, a minor rebellion. And Tony Pandy is still remembered with, with great sharpness um, and, and anger in, in places, particularly in Wales. And so I think that it's quite interesting that we receive him now as a hero of the world, of Britain in the world, Britain in the empire, Britain in the United States, Britain um, against Germany. Uh, but we actually talk very little about his domestic record. And along with that, you know, we have sort of forgotten that in 1945, he was quite famously booted out of office by by the British electorate. And that kind of paradox um, is something we have more or less brushed out of popular discussions of Churchill. Compared with how he is seen by the majority in this country, how is he seen in India today? Because I think Ali goes quite a lot into his role in the the Bengal famine. But how would you assess the, the way Indians see Churchill? Well, the funny thing is that middle-class English-speaking Indians, including members of my own family, love citing Churchill, um, and they see him as a great wit. Um, So we grew up with funny things that Churchill said about this, that, or the other. Um, And people, there is a kind of going along with the myth of this incredibly talented, uh, funny, witty man who had a great command of language. I mean, there is a a sort of um, middle class Indian fondness for English. And Churchill obviously comes across as as a great practitioner of the English language. 
More recently, nationalist and political historians uh, of a nationalist bent um, have attacked Churchill, have attacked the Bengal famine, um, and they have uh, rightly in one sense said that Churchill's record in relation to India was was checkered, he was deeply racist, um, and, and that needs to be condemned, and that Britain needs to face up to how horrible Churchill was on India. But I think in India there's a, a danger that certainly Ali alludes to, um, and that I feel uh, quite strongly about, of a reverse mythology, where Churchill was an evil man single-handedly responsible for the Bengal famine. There is no doubt that Churchill's personal and political views on India absolutely influenced what was quite unambiguously a callous, um, negligent, and, and ferociously hostile attitude to the Bengal famine. Equally, I think Indian elites uh, are prone to their own mythologies, and they forget that uh, Churchill was a significant, the British Raj was a significant element of what happened in the Bengal famine, but that local elites um, were also responsible. Uh, you know, some of the profiteering, some of the hoarding, some of the unequal distribution of relief materials uh, was in the hands of, of Indian elites. So again, this is not a black and white story where there are heroic Indians and um, evil uh, British colonialists led by, by Churchill. The, the picture is more complicated. Sadly, it's a picture where millions of people died because elites both in India and in Britain were horrifically indifferent to suffering and loss of life. Now, of course, the the, the Churchill cult um, uh, is built on uh, his record, his war, his record as a wartime leader defeating fascism. But again, in Ali's book, um, the, the suggestion comes across that that even this was a complicated picture. That that actually until quite late into the 1930s, uh, he, for instance, uh, admired aspects of Mussolini and Hitler himself. Yes, and he's on, on record as having said so. He has expressed, um, admira he, uh, expressed admiration to Mussolini and about Mussolini. Um, he said um, very flattering things about Hitler's nationalism and his patriotism. He spoke about Hitler as somebody who was um, rescuing Germany from the horrid fate to which it had been consigned after the First World War. Um, and as I understand it, uh, his break from uh, British foreign policy to say rightly that Hitler must be opposed, uh, that the war against Hitler was paramount, came rather late um, in the day. It's not as though he was consistently speaking uh, against Hitler. I think the point here, um, and I think this comes out in Ali's rendition of um, Churchill in relation both to the colonies and to working class protest, that he did believe in putting down assertion with a heavy hand and a heavy military hand. Um, and this was an aspect of fascism that in all likelihood did appeal to him, the strong man um, who knew what was right for his people and who took the necessary unambiguously uh, ruthless action in order to achieve it. I think, I think that that does very much come through in things that Churchill himself is on record as saying. 
And I, th I think we know that Hitler was fascinated by the British rule of India, how, how a, a country could rule such a large place with, with such relatively small forces. Yes, I mean, uh, Hitler was an, an admirer specifically of the British Empire, um, and in many ways, of course, um, he sought uh, to bring Germany to the status that Britain had um, in the world by expanding and um, annexing. Uh, the other thing that, of course... Uh, the British Empire and uh, you know Nazism share that that we don't talk about is a fondness for racial hierarchy, um, is a commitment to white supremacy. These are not pleasant things to uh, have to encounter, but I think that again, there's been a, a dishonesty in. Uh, wider historical understandings of Churchill's moment, which completely separates uh, empire and imperialism as Britain practiced them, and the racial and imperial ideologies that underpinned Nazism, underpinned Hitler's own expansionist vision. Why does this matter, Priya? Why, why, why does it matter that we have a rounded picture of, of, of Churchill? What are we missing and what are the obstructions in our understanding of our own history if we can't come to a reckoning with this figure? I think the great danger with any mythology, you know, whether it's in Britain around Churchill or whether it's um, around other figures elsewhere, is that we don't take on board what really goes into the making of our present moment, that we have a selective understanding of history. We know in recent years that not just British exceptionalism, but English exceptionalism that I think Churchill, uh, the, the, the Churchill mythology is part of, um, has driven very consequential decisions. I think, you know, Brexit was premised on a certain exceptionalism, on a certain um, story of a plucky little island triumphant on its own. Um, and that has led to a political understanding of our present, which certainly, in my view, um, has been damaging, um, or at least it has been um, uh, useful only to some parties in British society today. I think also that if we uh, don't question the fact that empire was not beloved either out in the empire or in Britain, um, I think there is a tendency to not have a nostalgia for a, a past moment when you know Britain ruled the world and all was well, God was in his heaven, um, and that was never the case. Um, and I think that that longing uh, for this past moment of glory, which actually never existed, for this lost moment of unity uh, where Britain was led by a, an, an indomitable authority-laden figure, um, I think that those visions create desires in the present which lead to consequences that are at least serious. And I think that hankering for a strong man leader who cannot be questioned, who must not be questioned, I think I don't need to spell out where, where that kind of fantasy uh, might eventually lead. I, I haven't read the book, so I don't know how much it deals with the Second World War. You, you don't touch much on that in, in, in your review. I, I mean... It, I suppose a critic would accuse you both of underplaying um, Churchill's role and, and you're writing a kind of revisionism 
uh, and a kind of corrective to the to, to the accepted narrative, which is itself unfair because it doesn't acknowledge the fact that he was a, a kind of hero to to the British people for his role in the Second World War. In fact, the book does touch on it. It, it is clear that Churchill uh, did the right thing that at a very crucial moment. Um, he turned the political tide, that he uh, recognised the danger of Hitler before others in his milieu uh, did, before others in power did. I think, I think that credit is certainly given where it's due, but I think the point is that this is the aspect of Churchill's life and times, which has been written about in literally thousands of books. So in a sense, simply Going over that story again would be to simply add yet another book to that particular pile. I think revisionism would be uh, a book which didn't acknowledge that Churchill did the right thing at the right moment. Um, Ali is clear on that. Um, I'm clear on that. I think the question is what else has been left out and what is more complicated in that picture that has been left out. And I think to add those complications, to add those nuances, to add things that people have forgotten about, um, I don't think that's revisionism. That's fleshing out the historical picture. You're a fellow of Churchill College, um, and you write in your view uh, about your own attempt to, to hold a, a, a series of discussions about Churchill in the Round. Um, and the, the, this this series was, um, you say, summer summarily suspended by the by the college. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, um, this goes back to your um, initial question about the cult and the denunciation of anybody who uh, veers away from a very strictly script, scriptural understanding of Hitler. Um, when this series was announced, um, and right after the first uh, uh, in the series, uh, when the second uh, event in the series was announced, it was called The Racial Consequences of Mr. Churchill, which was a play, of course, on Keynes's The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill, which was a, was a critique of Churchill. Um, the tabloid press, um, even before the event happened, uh, raised the alarm about how a bunch of academics were going to trash Churchill. And it's interesting because already Ali has been accused by the tabloids of trashing uh, Churchill. We had no such intention. Um, we were quite simply going to talk about things that hadn't been talked about, which was his views on race um, and on empire. The tabloids raised the alarm even before the event happened. I got hate mail. Others got hate mail. We were pilloried um, in, in the tabloids as people who had no right to speak on Churchill, people who had no credentials to speak on Churchill, although all four of us are academics and have uh, written uh, books on, on empire. So when this happened, when the event itself happened, uh, there was controversy, particularly around, I think, the connection uh, which Ali does also raise in his book between Nazi ideologies and imperial ideologies and the fact that there are connections there and that's, that it's not a simple opposition. This became uh, a flashpoint. But the issue isn't the tabloids. What really, I think, scared the college officers was that the Churchill family got involved. 
Um, and we know this to also be the case, that anything, any deviation from a glowing understanding of Churchill brings the family's wrath uh, upon your head. And so that happened. And we had um, uh, members of the family, who I will not name, both publicly um, and privately to the college, um, uh, express anger and upset about the fact that the event had happened at all um, and that there was any attempt to round out Churchill's legacies or to talk about him in anything but the most positive of ways. And then, of course, the usual happened, which is hints that donors to the college and to the Churchill archives would pull out. In fact, in one case, the threat was... Um, I think, quite explicit. And I think this clearly spooked college management. And at that time, the series was halted. So you were cancelled? Well, yes. <laughs> well, I'm just interested because um, the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge got an awful lot of stick from, generally from members of the right-wing press for, for his statement uh, about Cambridge's commitment to free speech and... Uh, it was famously amended to say that you you must have a respect, not respect, tolerance. You must tolerate all all uh, uh, kinds of speech. So how, that that was really um, at odds with Cambridge's commitment to free speech. Well, one thing to say is that those who make um, or you know certain parties who make free speech a political issue from the right have absolutely no real commitment to it. I mean, this is something I myself have seen over and over again. So that that is not a surprise to me. There is absolute hypocrisy around free speech. In the case of the university, the university, um, as you may know, doesn't get involved in individual collegiate events, and this was a collegiate event. But but that said, um, colleges have a duty to preserve academic freedom, have a, a duty to preserve uh, free speech. And um, I think that this was a situation where there was a, a, a signal failure to stand up to forces who wanted to shut the discussion on Churchill down. Does that impact more broadly on people using the Churchill Archive or people who would like to write more rounded histories of Churchill in the future that they would they would feel uh, inhibited or intimidated from doing so. I mean, it can't be... I, I sometimes um, see you having a very tough time on Twitter. It can't be comfortable. Well, I think it is absolutely fair to say that if you write a book that is not um, flattering, that um, is in any way seriously critical, uh, you will... Uh, you will be pilloried. Uh, you will be pilloried in the tabloids. You will get um, pushback from the family, and 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 who knows um, what else? Uh, it, you know, it is striking that for a historical figure who was controversial in his time, who had a very long political career, that there are thousands of books on him, and really maybe one or two engage with, uh, you know the aspects of his life that are not flattering. I mean, even a hagiographer like Andrew Roberts, um, when he mentioned Churchill's uh, racism, which, you know, even the most 
ardent admirer of Churchill cannot turn his face away from racism. Even Andrew Roberts um, got pushed back when, you know, in his sort of huge admiring tome mentioned uh, Churchill's racism and he was accused of, of, of trashing uh, Churchill. So I think that anybody who works on Churchill, and I hope people do, there is a lot of material in the archives which needs to be looked at. In fact, Ali doesn't do that. Ali doesn't actually... Um, go to the archives and look up material that hasn't been uh, written about. He draws largely on on existing scholarship. I I think there's a lot of work to be done, but I think we have to be very clear-eyed, particularly in the present political dispensation, um, that there is no robust protection for academic freedom and freedom of speech and that you're um, likely to meet with a lot of pushback. But pushback is not a reason uh, not to do uh, what you should be doing. I have to ask whether you've read Boris Johnson's book on Churchill. No, I have not read uh, Boris Johnson's book on Churchill. I'm not a great admirer of uh, uh, Mr. Johnson's way of thinking or his writing. Um, And I am dreading the book on Shakespeare perhaps even more uh, than his book on Churchill. But, uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Johnson because actually uh, it's a very good example of the cult that in order for you, you know, to place yourself in the British political pantheon, at some point you have to... Uh, show yourself to be an admirer of, and uh, and in his case, I assume, modelling himself uh, on on the on the cult figure that is Churchill. Thank you so much, Priya, for joining us today. Thank you, uh, as listeners, for for tuning in to hear this uh, discussion. If you uh, were interested in what we've been talking about today, please do read the article. It's a fascinating article. Grab a copy of the new issue of Prospect Magazine, or you can go to subscription.prospectmagazine, all one word, .co.uk, and please subscribe. In the current issue, in addition to reading Priya's excellent piece, there's Ethan Zuckerman, a fascinating American academic about the splintering of the internet. Uh, Mike Brearley, the former English cricket captain on Pinter and Cricket, Sheila Hancock, and many others. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.